bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. And now, host Biraj Borkataria and John Musk kick off the first session. Good morning, everyone, and good afternoon, and thank you for joining the session today. This is the first in RBC's series of navigating the energy transition. This is obviously such a complex topic, we thought that would be best to dig into one aspect at a time. We're starting with carbon capture today, um, but we'll obviously discuss the various other hot topics such as hydrogen, low carbon electricity, renewable fuels, and a bunch of other topics. We've set this up as a, as a monthly session. I'm sure many of you, like us, um, are, are quite fatigued with multi-day conferences on, on webcasts, so we thought it'd be easier to digest this way. I'm hosting this session with my colleague, John Musk, who runs our European Utilities Research Team, and you'll hear from him in a second. Um, but over the course of the coming months, you'll hear from a number of uh, RBC analysts on, on various topics. Thanks, Biraj, um, and welcome again to everybody uh, on the on the lines and on the webcast today. Uh, as Biraj says, we're going through a series of, of different events, but today we're going to focus on uh, carbon capture use and storage. Um, we have three speakers joining us, all of which cover diff different aspects of carbon capture. Uh, firstly, we have Suan Tan, who is Shell's Group Carbon Relations Manager, uh, and their representative for CCS for Shell at the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. Uh, we then have Jason Chipson, who is Director of Innovation of DRAX, heavily involved in DRAX's uh, bioenergy carbon capture use and storage projects, or BECS for short. Uh, and then finally, Steve Oldham, Chief Executive Officer of Carbon Engineering. Uh, Steve will be able to discuss uh, direct air capture technology, which is the focus for carbon engineering. Uh, as Biraz mentioned, um, we would like to make this as interactive as possible. Uh, you should be able to submit questions online. Um, so please do that during the uh, during the discussion. Uh, but for now, I'll hand back to Biraj and we'll get the uh, initial Q&A started. Great. Um, so maybe we can start with you, uh, Suan. Um, CCS has been talked about for quite a long time, and obviously Shell's been doing uh, a lot of work around this, particularly around the role it plays uh, in, in, a, in a net zero world. So could you start by uh, setting the scene for us uh, and talk about the role of, of CCS in, in, a, in a Paris aligned uh, world? Why is it so important? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Baraj, and uh, hi, everyone, uh, and uh, speakers out there. Good morning, good afternoon from wherever you're dialing in. I think uh, the key thing about CCS is uh, that we've seen develop over the last little while is that every scenario from the IPCC, from the IEA, the scientists, the experts agree that CCUS has a critical role to play for the world to achieve the Paris Agreement goals of a well below uh, two degree world. And importantly, also, I think a recognition about the role of CCS to support industry growth and jobs. The other key thing that the experts are agreeing on are that CCS is vital for the meaningful decarbonisation of critical heavy industries like steel, cement, refiners and chemical complexes. Uh, and so that acknowledgement of uh, the criticality of CCUS uh, is, is uh, really quite well understood now and agreed on by the experts. I think, though, in order for CCS really to meet the world, you know, to help the world to reach these climate ambitions, we need to really start storing CO2 at scale by 2030. 
So right now in 2020, there are 51 large scale CCS facilities in operation or in development. So for example, Shell operates the Quest uh, CCS project in Alberta, Canada, that has captured CO2 from our hydrogen production and, and safely stored nearly 5 million tonnes of CO2 since 2015. So combine those 51 odd facilities will capture and store about 30 million tonnes per annum of CO2 when they're all built, developed, you know, and, and, and operational. But to really meet the world, a well below two degree world, if that's, the, if that's the real ambition of the world, then we need to multiply this capacity rapidly. And I really don't think we can underestimate the size of that challenge, particularly given the lead time for projects to be identified, developed and build, something I'm sure that, that both, both uh, uh, Steve and, and Jason will talk about in, in their context as well. So what does that mean? I mean, I think it really, you know, it's important that we kind of have immediate action. We've got to keep up this extensive collaboration uh, between governments, between our shareholders, between us as industry, uh, importantly, the investor community. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about the role the financing sector uh, can play uh, in CCUS. Uh, we need our NGOs on board. We need our communities on board because remembering that these plants and these projects are built on land usually uh, and so you really do need those fence line communities to support um, the development of these projects as well uh, to really kind of accelerate the, the deployment uh, that is required in CCUS. Uh, and I should also want uh, one other uh, short point to make as well on that is to note that you know, Charlotte, uh, in April this year, we announced our ambition to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. And we've been clearing that that CCUS will be an important technology to help reach our ambition. Great. Th uh, thanks for that, uh, Colour. Maybe we can turn to you, um, Jason. Uh, Drax has some ambitious plans in itself to be to be carbon negative over time, and, and CCS seems to be a, a big part of that. You focused on the uh, Bex technology, and uh, I wonder if you can walk us through for the layperson what exactly that is, where you are in the stage of development, and, and what it would take for you to scale that up. Thanks, Braj, and good morning, good afternoon to uh, to the audience. Um, so, Bex is bioenergy, carbon capture, and storage. So, it's a combination of bioenergy, in our case, biomass electricity generation, and carbon capture and storage. Um, so the CCS technology that you use for BEX is, is nothing new. It's no different to the CCS technology that's in use in, in some of the projects around the world that Sue Ern's already mentioned. Um, so our, our plans at Drax are all around, I guess, um, well, two angles to BEX. So you get um, carbon neutral power uh, and you also get negative emissions. Um, so you kind of get two for one, two, two um two additive uh, things that the world needs in the journey towards um, you know, a, a net zero 2050. Um, so in order to get there, we started our development, we started our development on biomass in 2004, and we've been um, four units on 100% biomass. Um, we started that journey in 2013, so two thirds of the power station now runs on biomass. Um, the other two units on coal will close next year. Um, so we're focusing very much on how do we add to that biomass technology and BEX is our chosen path. Um, we have currently two pilot plants on site. So we have uh, one from MHI, which is a, an established CCS technology, uh, an amine based technology. Um, and we also have uh, a pilot plant from a small UK company called Sea Capture, which uses a similar chemistry. Uh, it's a solvent based technology. Uh, but the formula of the solvent is different. Uh, the process is ever so slightly different. Um, 
I think one is a one is a market ready technology now and is already being in use in the market. One is probably a, a future technology, uh, but we're we're using both pilots at the moment to understand the interaction between um, those two different CCS technologies and our biomass blue gas. Um, so far, that work is going very well, going to plan. Um, we're in the middle of pre-feed work now uh, for BEX, so we're doing all of the pre-engineering work that covers things like um, available space on site, how we would connect, where the various energy sources, cooling sources, et cetera, for the CCS process um, are needed. Uh, and then next year, we will move into uh, pre-feed, uh, sorry, into full feed uh, and site clearance work. I'm happy to give a, a brief update on, on kind of how the CCS process works, if that would be useful. Yeah, that'll be useful. Thank you. When you're doing that, just think about um, what's needed for you to, to move to the next stage of development, uh, in particular around you know, the policy framework. I know the UK government released their uh, consultation response on CCS recently, which was pretty favourable in, in terms of the headline messages, but what sort of uh, incentive frameworks do you think you're going to need to, to push forward with that? Okay, so um, a very quick run through um, how does BEX work? Um, so or how does CCS work, I guess, in, in a post-combustion world? Um, so we produce a flue gas. The flue gas has uh, about 16% CO2 in it. Um, so we have to move the flue gas and the solvent together for the reaction to take place. So we do that in a vessel called an absorber. It's quite a tall, thin vessel. Um, once the solvent has been in contact with the flue gas, the CO2 moves out of the flue gas and into the solvent. Um, the solvent then carries on around its loop. So the solvent goes around in a constant loop. It carries on around that loop into a vessel called a stripper. Um, we change the temperature and the pressure of the solvent. The CO2 that was caught by the solvent is then released. Um, we compress that CO2 and then that CO2 goes off for st geological storage or reuse. Um, the solvent now devoid of uh, CO2 is called a lean solvent and that goes back into the process um, to meet, uh, I guess, fresh flue gas as that comes through to do the same job again. So it's a, it's a constant chemical process that removes the CO2 from the flue gas. Uh, in terms of what we need to make that happen, so our timeline is to have our first BEX units online in 2027, which kind of coincides with the end of the um, current support for biomass. We're doing several things to make that uh, a possibility. Um, so a large part of the cost of running a, a power station like ours is a fuel cost, and it's just the same in the BEX world. Uh, so we have a, 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 a goal to take around about a third out of the cost of our biomass fuel. Um, and we're well on with that journey now. So we're, you know, that is going to plan. We're well down that path. Um, we would need to start construction probably in 2023 for a 2027 startup. That 2027 startup allows us to have one unit running in time for our stated ambition of being a um, carbon negative company by 2030. Um, but in order to start construction, we would need to take FID early in 2023 which really gives us the time between now and then to do our engineering work, pre-feed, feed work, but also to work closely with government to make sure that the right levels of regulatory support are in place, um, both for the TNS infrastructure, so the transport and storage infrastructure, um, which has been developed certainly in the Humber region through a vehicle called Zero Carbon Humber Partnership, 
Um, so that includes people like ourselves, Equinor and Astro Grid, um, lots of other local industrial emitters. Um, it's probably one of the highest CO2 emittive regions in the country. So um, lots of scope there for sort of post-COVID green recovery, um, capital project growth, all geared around decarbonisation. Um, so I think the government support is the key thing for us. We're working closely with government. The recent announcements about um, consultation on business models for TNS and CCS very helpful. Um, I think there's a call for evidence due very shortly for negative emissions uh, on nets, negative emission technologies, and we will be actively involved in that. But success in that is ultimately one of the key gates that we will need to see um, in order to sort of press the button for um, FID in 2023. Great, thank you for that. Um, and maybe Steve, you can sit there patiently so we can we can bring you in. Um, you're obviously looking at a, a different technology to, to Jason in terms of direct air capture. Um, can you just talk a little bit around how that fits in, um, how it's going to form part of the solution, I guess, alongside um, something like BEX uh, and some of the, the challenges you face in bringing direct air capture to the market? So, uh, good morning and thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, let me first talk about, you know, why direct air capture, why does it make sense? So, we have to get to net zero. I think there's wide recognition of that, as Sue Ern said in her introductory statement. So, to get to net zero, you have to stop every single emitter on the planet, every single one. And you have to collect the CO2 from that emitter. You have to take it to somewhere you can permanently store it, and then you have to put it back underground again every single emitter on the planet, every car, every truck, every plane, every boat, every chemical plant, every agricultural facility, every cement plant. It's a huge, huge undertaking. So when you look at that on a global scale, and the UK is a mini version of that global problem, what you find is that you have an array of costs, an array of feasibilities. So there will be a series of low hanging fruit things that are relatively easy to decarbonize, plants where you can capture CO2 directly out of a chemical plant. But what about cars? What about trucks? What about planes? So what direct air capture does is it captures the CO2 directly from the atmosphere. It has two advantages. Firstly, it means you can eliminate any emission from any place on the planet of any type and any moment in time. And secondly, it allows you to address legacy emissions. So while net zero is critical, even after getting to net zero, 95% of the CO2 that causes a climate change problem is already in the atmosphere. We have to deal with that too. So direct air capture gives you a way of picking up CO2 from the atmosphere, those emissions that we can't collect or stop, the ones that are too expensive to stop, too difficult, and in a non-disruptive way, we can pull those emissions back down and bury them underground. So where are we up to with that technology? So behind me, you see a plant that is uh, entering into detailed design. It's in the United States. We're building that with Occidental, um, which is an energy company in the US. It captures a megaton of CO2 per year, and that's the equivalent of about 40 million trees. It's less than 100 acres, and it's run on renewable electricity. Uh, predominantly. So um, where are we in the United Kingdom in bringing this technology? 
Well, this morning we announced a partnership with Pale Blue Dot uh, in Scotland, which is uh, running the Acorn facility. And we're going to work with Pale Blue Dot to bring direct air capture technology, which, which is uh, fully ready for implementation and deployment, into the United Kingdom and provide this way in which you can capture any emission of any type. And I know it's um, perhaps difficult to compare and contrast the the costs of these technologies um, because I think they're all relatively unique depending on where they're located and the, and the exact technology you're using. But is there anything you can say around the, the costs of direct air capture versus traditional carbon capture and storage, uh, particularly maybe maybe BECs? Um, and as we look at that through the through the life cycle of the of the assets, uh, some of the criticisms may not may may not be appropriate in terms of your particular plants, but some of the criticisms with direct air capture is the the energy intensity of the of the absorbance of the absorbance um, versus say with BECs, where you uh, obviously need a lot of forestry to to produce the biomass in the first place. So you know, I think. Um... I never liked the route of comparing A to B. Uh, you know, I could talk about the extreme challenge of finding enough forestry uh, around the world uh, to, to produce the trees uh, that BEX requires. But, you know, everything has its advantages and its disadvantage. So direct air capture is more expensive than capturing CO2 from a flu stack. Of course it is. CO2 from a flu stack is much more concentrated, but there's only so many flu stacks. And when you run out of flu stacks, what are you going to do about the next CO2 emission? So where direct air capture fits in is for those emissions that are too expensive to fix another way. And by providing a mechanism to capture any emission from anywhere, you have a way in which you provide a, a, a worst case cap on the cost of eliminating climate change. So when I was in the UK, I've been to the UK uh, twice over the last year, talking to many different government officials what they recognize is that carbon capture can deal with a certain percentage of the problem. X can deal with a percentage of the problem. But then you need a mechanism to deal with all of the other CO2 emissions that you can't stop any other way. And you have to deal with legacy emissions. So that's what direct air capture gives you. It's an infinitely scalable solution. Uh, as that's, that's not my words. That's what came out of Goldman Sachs. Maybe we can uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, I wanted to throw this out to all of you, but maybe starting with Suan, um, can we talk a little bit about policy? Um, carbon pricing is an obvious one that would incentivize you know, or provide more support uh, for carbon capture, but there's also different mechanisms uh, in different regions. So, you know, what do you envisage that you need to see from governments and policymakers to make uh, CCS a viable standalone uh, business? Uh, in terms of carbon price or, or otherwise. Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks, Baraj. And I think, you know, I think just closing out on Steve's point as well, I don't think it's an either or question. I think it's an and and uh, answer to that. You know, I, th I think Steve is right. There's a role for, for DEC, there's a role, sorry, direct air capture, there's a role for BEC, there's a role for CCUS. Uh, and I think it's, it's definitely not an either or. The scale of the challenge of what we need to do uh, to help the world to meet that. That, that Paris Agreement goal uh, is so significant that, that it's really not a choice. Um, so, so let me come back on the policy question. So, you know, 
let, let me speak specifically about CCUS for now. So it's CCUS is a pre-commercial technology, it's reliable, it's proven, it's ready for deployment at scale. But the reality of where we are in that technology curve right now is it still requires financial support to make economic sense. You know, the rough estimates for the total cost of capture, transport and storage, and again, I think, you know, Steve sort of highlighted this as well. It could range somewhere between, you know, US dollars, 40 to $200 per tonne, because it just depends on a whole range of factors that are so specific to the, to the site. So the purity of the CO2 stream, the capture technology, the proximity to the storage site, so how far you have to transport it, uh, as well as other vertical integration and, and, you know, where possible people, you know, to utilization revenues like through enhance or, or recovery. So to just say that a carbon price, I think alone, I think it would have to be very, very high to dramatically accelerate the CCS deployment that's needed. And I think politically that's very unlikely into the short to medium term. So if I look at some numbers, you know, the IEA uh, energy technology perspective that just came out this week, you know, cites some different ranges for CCUS. Uh, in hard to abate uh, sectors, and that you know they're, they're looking between eighty dollars a ton. This is U.S. dollars to one hundred and thirty dollars a ton, depending on the sector. So it's a wide uh, range, and we're definitely nowhere near that uh, in, in any of the schemes that we have available. Um, so it is necessary, I think, for governments to step in uh, uh, with with some quite specific supporting policies um, to, to try and push this through. So in the U.S., you've already seen, and I think. A lot of credit to the government there of the what they call the Section 45Q tax credit, which effectively gives a credit for every ton of CO2 stored. Um, you know, you have different roles, like the Norwegian government, for example, has played quite a critical role in supporting the Northern Lights project, which Shell is a, a, a partner in, along with uh, Equinor and uh, Total, uh, which I think another key flagship uh, project that the Norwegian government has recognised and is directly funding and supporting because it separates out the transport and storage component from the capture component uh, by taking obviously all the CO2 that's captured on shore, transporting it via ship into a central point, and then it goes by pipeline and is stored in, into the in the depleted fills in, off the uh, uh, in the uh, in the North Sea. And that, that kind of, I think, creativity and I think the Norwegian governments and the EU um, Commission's sort of acknowledgement of how important that project is and that particular business model is, is now, for example, something that the Southeast Asian countries are looking at because for them very often, you know, trying to do transport and storage in a country like Singapore, for example, which is so small, uh, is quite difficult. So I think that role for government now you see uh, quite clearly not just through direct subsidies or through, you know, funding or through you know, tax credits or um, regulated asset base that they're looking at, for example, in the UK, I think that kind of notion that you need quite a few different policy mechanisms to get CCUS to a place where it becomes commercial uh, and something that we can get more investors to finance in um, is, is quite critical. Can I add a comment on that? I think, um, I think it would be beneficial to describe why this plant behind me is getting built. So this plant is in the United States. Uh, it's enabled by some innovative policy instruments around carbon pricing uh, that I think, you know, the fact that we're building this plant demonstrates that's successful. So as Siren said, tax credit for CO2 removal. What does that do? It incentivizes every industry that has a tax bill to find a way to eliminate its emissions. It doesn't specify a solution. It just specifies the fact that if you cut your carbon by a certain quantity, we'll give you a tax credit and everybody pays taxes. 
The second thing that enables this plant is California's low carbon fuel standards. So in California, they have set up a market-based system where the state, in, uh, in the case of California, dictates that the amount of CO2 and carbon intensity in any fuel used in the state has to drop over time. So if you're a fuel provider in California, which is, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world, you have to find a way to decarbonize. And so the, the funding and the money goes to the cheapest solutions that are um, eligible under the scheme. So the market sets the price. The consumer barely notices because it ends up as a very small percentage of the cost of a liter of gas at the pump. So the combination of those two policies, a market-based incentive that allows market to set the price and a tax credit that incentivizes every company to find a way to get to net zero, that's what allows this multi-hundred million dollar plant behind me to get built. That's, that's great, Carlo. I appreciate that. I'm stick, sticking with you, Steve. Um, overnight, um, <laughs> there was a press release from Carbon Engineering about a partnership in the UK. Um, so could you talk to us about the significance of that? It, it feels like the UK could be a quite a meaningful player uh, in carbon capture. Um, but if you could just give us your thoughts on that, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're delighted to partner with Pale Blue Dot. Um, yeah, why do we think the UK is a good location for direct air capture? So fundamentally for me, three things. And number one, you have access to the North Sea. The North Sea has the capacity for gigatons of storage of CO2. And in Europe, there's only a small number of uh, countries that have access to the North Sea. The UK is one of them. It is an asset for sequestration, which can be widely used. Uh, number two, lots of opportunity for renewable power. On the east coast of Scotland, the east coast of the United Kingdom, there's plenty of, of wind, plenty of potential for uh, solar power. Uh, so the availability of new renewable electricity to power direct air capture plants is there. And then number three, you know, you look at the skill set required. These are chemical plants. Uh, they have to be constructed and operated. The skill set that you have in those industrial reg regions is exactly the skill set that you need to operate and build these plants. We're partnered with Occidental in, in Texas to build this plant. The same skill set is available in Scotland, in Northeast England. So I think, you know, I think we all think carbon capture is going to be one of the largest growth industries in the 21st century. The United Kingdom has the potential to be a real leader in that with those core assets that I just described. So what we wanted to do was we've developed the technology, it works. Uh, we wanted to bring it into the United Kingdom with a partner uh, and allow a United Kingdom company to be the one that exploits that, builds the plants, employing UK citizens and building a new industry. That's great, sounds very promising. Um... One one last one for you, Suan, and then we'll, I think we can open up to um, questions from the audience because there's a long list of them. Um, so you wear you wear a few hats. Um, I wanted to ask you about your role within the Oil and Glass uh, Climate Initiative. Um, you are the CCS champion for OGCI, um, so clearly you're passionate about the subject. Um, when you think about decarbonisation, particularly around the very carbon-intensive industries like steel, cement, etc. Um, you know, what is the role of collaboration within that? And, and also, you know, why does it make sense versus Shell trying to do something alone? Um, and what, what's the, I guess, ultimately, what's, what is OGCI trying to achieve 
within CCS. Yeah, thanks, Baraj. Um, so maybe just a bit of context. So the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, it's a CEO-led consortium of 12 companies. It's a mix of both international and national oil corporations. And we represent, I think at last check, about 30% of the world's oil and gas production. So quite substantial. Um, so last year in September, we launched what we call the CCUS Kickstarter Initiative. And it was really this acknowledgement about the need to facilitate large-scale commercial investment in CCUS. And we, when we thought about it and we talked about the challenge of what needs to be done, um, we really wanted to focus on this notion of how do we create and enable multiple, at global scale, low carbon industrial hubs. So these hubs, you know, the reason why we're looking at it that way is that it would allow us to capture CO2 from several different industrial sources. You bring the economies of scale where possible by sharing transport and storage uh, infrastructure. And I think also it allows uh, us to work with governments and with the local communities uh, around which these hubs would be built um, to really try and facilitate those necessary market conditions for investment. Um, so obviously member companies ourselves are investing in some of these hubs, and I'll talk about one in the UK in a minute. Uh, but we want to make it uh, something uh, also for other independent investors and, and people in the finance sector, for example, to also be, you know, see the financial value in investing uh, in some of these hubs. Um, I think what's also been really lovely is, uh, for example, uh, that hub concept and the importance of trying to find efficiencies by grouping these together in a geolo geographical location and the, the associated geological storage uh, uh, has also been recognized, for example, by the UK government, you know, in the CCS infrastructure fund that it announced uh, uh, that the Chancellor here talked about in February in, its, in his budget update. You know, it was clear to say uh, the UK would allocate at least 800 million pounds to facilitate the delivery of at least two CCUS clusters, uh, one by mid 2020s and the second one by 2030. And I think that that really important acknowledgement about the role of these clusters, uh, and let me talk specifically about one, the net zero T-side project in the UK, uh, which was something that the OGCI Climate Investments Fund, which is a $1 billion plus fund that us as member companies have contributed to, um, uh, which, which was uh, launched earlier this year, uh, focusing at developing UK's first commercial clean gas power full chain CCS project. But I think the important thing about that net zero T side project is it's really aiming to decarbonize a cluster of those carbon intensive businesses around T side. Um, we have now BP, ENI, Equinor, Shell, and Total. We've now assumed leadership of the project and we're taking it through uh, past the pre feed process uh, at the moment. And I think the reason why the UK government sees the benefit of the clusters approach is, you know, net zero T site could, you know, enable a gross benefit of up to 450 million pounds, supporting 5,500 direct jobs, really think about a way of launching this green economy in Northeast England. Um, and I think given where we are post COVID and green recovery packages, I think that acknowledgement about the role that CCUS can play in really creating a powerhouse uh, here, here in the UK, for example, in, in England, I think is, is a really positive sign. Great, thank you. Um, I think we'll switch now to the questions we've got online and we've got a, about 20 or so at the moment, so we may not get through all of them, but um, starting maybe with Jason, who, uh, who's been quiet for a couple of minutes. Um, one question for you is, Drax was previously involved in, in other carbon capture storage projects. I think it was the White Rose project a few years ago. Um, what's different with this one? Maybe that comes back to the cluster point that Sue Ern was just talking about. Uh, and then a second one, uh, and you may not be able to answer, but 
Um, can you give some detail of the economics in the BEX project, both in terms of absolute cost and cost per megawatt hour? Okay. Um, so I guess the White Rose project was different in that it was a much smaller project. It was a full chain project. So the White Rose included the build of a new plant. It was a, a coal, a predominantly a new build coal plant um, with a carbon capture, uh, transport and storage system. There were five or six partners involved in that project at the time. Um, and there were various reasons, I think, why that project ultimately didn't succeed, but the funding was was pulled for that project um, towards the end, um, perhaps a little bit of ahead of its time and a little bit ahead of, you know, potentially the perceived need for that technology at that cost at that time. Um, I think the world is in a different place now. You know, we used to talk about climate change. We now talk about climate emergency. So I think that, you know, people are just much more attuned to, um, you know, to, to the point that Steve made that, to hit net zero 2050, you have to stop all emissions. But actually, is that actually practical? And 95% of the emissions that, you know, um, that we need to be concerned about are already there. So I think being able to reverse that um, is hugely important. So, you know, organizations like the Climate Change Committee have identified that we will have something like 90 million tons of residual emissions by 2050. Um, we need to get rid of those. We need to offset those. Um, so negative emission technologies, BEX being one of them, um, you know, that there's um, sort of 50 million tons of that um, is, is kind of slated to be removed by negative emission technologies. Um, so I think that there's just a, a different environmental uh, perspective now on what needs to be done, much more clarity. Um, and, you know, we need to get this stuff done. We need to get on with it. Um, in terms of costs, um, I'm not going to answer that probably as directly as the as the questioner would have liked. Um, capital costs, these are expensive projects. You know, these are big capital infrastructure projects. Um, we have to build capture equipment um, at the power station. We have to build a transport system onshore. We have to build a transport system offshore. We have to establish, maintain, run geological storage. Um, so these are big projects. They're not, um, you know, these are not cheap things to do. However, um, in the overall sort of cost seriatim, um, just talking about BEX specifically, there are public numbers out there which were um, largely generated, um, I guess, with the best experience people had. There aren't any large-scale BEX plants out there running. But the kind of £150 per tonne number that's out there, um, we're already very confident that we are significantly below that number. So we're aiming for a number much lower than that. Um, and all of the work we're doing so far is pointing to that's where we're going to, you know, we're going to go. So the questioner was right. There is a, both a capital side of this and um, an OPEX side of this. Um, and in, in the case of BEX, you know, the, the, the project is uh, very focused on reducing that OPEX cost by reducing our fuel cost, because the fuel cost is a significant portion of the overall end-to-end -end cost of BEX. So the the next question I think is quite an interesting one, and um, I think all three touched on the same point, which was it's very difficult to compare the, the full cycle costs of, of CCS, but uh, the question was essentially every estimate of unit costs for solar and wind have consistently overshot, and you've seen this huge deflation uh, in the cost curve over the last 10 years or so. Um, 
you know, is there any reason why that couldn't occur in CCS? And, and how do you think about the cost evolving over the next uh, decade as scale builds up? So happy for any of you to, to answer that one. I can, I can add a couple of thoughts. Um, sorry, Jason, do you want to go ahead? Uh, no, I'll, I'll follow you, Steve. All right. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, so for us, direct air capture technology, um, our largest operational cost is energy. And the falling cost of renewable electricity is one of the things that drives down our cost structure. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, um, a government study done that projected direct air capture was costing $1,000 per tonne. And we're an order of magnitude less than that. Uh, the continuing fall in, in electricity prices will play a major part. So there are undoubtedly some of the factors that, that um, helped the, the, the reduction in cost of the physical um, solar and wind um, collection devices. Uh, those things have come down as an industry has been built, as more competition has come. And we definitely expect to see that. Uh, it's natural when you have any large industry emerging, you will get uh, competitive pressure and you'll get reduction in the cost of equipment. The second thing is uh, brilliant minds. So brilliant minds came to solar and electricity uh, and, um, and wind. We expect brilliant minds to come into carbon capture and direct air capture. You know, I like to, I like to quote the fact that there are about 200 people working in the direct air capture industry today. That's it for a technology that is, as everybody says, widely regarded as one of the most critical to address climate change. So the UK government's announced funding into direct air capture. More and more governments worldwide will start to do so. It will bring more brilliant minds and they will have better ideas than ours. And we will come up with better ideas. So we expect to see efficiency gains as this industry becomes mature, as well as just normal cost of construction and uh, repeat build costs coming down. So I think the answer to your questioner is yes, we do expect to see cost reductions come down over time, absolutely. I guess if I could just add some thoughts to that. So I think any first of kind technology when it's deployed in a country for the first kind does, you know, does attract an element of risk or is seen to have an element of risk. And I think pricing that accordingly and getting that in the right level to enable those first of kind projects to get away and for sort of lessons learned to happen. Um, you know, I don't think that's something we should, we should try and hide behind. There will be some premium for the first ones, but I think that cost reduction curve is really important. Um, I think another key difference from when we've done this before, you know, um, so Ern described net zero T side, zero carbon number is a similar partnership we're working with, uh, as Drax, we're working with, um, you know, people like Equinor, National Grid, big multinational companies. We haven't done partnering on this scale before, I don't think, to decarbonize. So, you know, you add in the engineering and project might of all those organizations. As Steve said, that brings in lots of brilliant minds. I'm sure there's more to come. So I think we, we just have a more joined up approach to doing this. And you can pick out all the best bits of project management and cost control practice by working together as a, as a, a group of industries across the sector. Um, so I think we, we will definitely, I think where we are on these projects and the scale of them brings a lot of focus onto that, that sort of cost profile over the early years. I think as investment comes in, as these become more mainstream, as you're doing your 
nth BEX or your 100th direct air capture. Um, you know, I think the technology will improve, the manufacturing cost will drop. We will find better ways to do this. We will find cheaper materials. We'll find more efficiencies in the processes. Um, so I think there's a huge cost down opportunity over time versus the sort of first of kind ones that we're hoping to deploy um, this decade. Yeah, and maybe j just two quite specific examples from our end. I think, you know, there are probably two main cost reduction drivers that we see at the moment. And I agree with everything that Jason and Steve have said. You know, I think the first one is around focusing on just accelerating the technology available today. And, and that Jason's comment about, you know, by the nth number of doing it, you know, just the cost reductions that we will get by learning by doing, and just putting these in place and deploying it in place, I think you'll start to see a reduction in, in the development costs. So, for example, you know, the Quest project that I mentioned in Alberta, Canada earlier that Shell operates, you know, we estimate that if we were to build a second Quest project, it would be viable at a 30% reduction on the CapEx reduction protect, you know, potential the developed pilot skill. You just get better and the costs come down as we do more and more of these, which is why we need to do more and more of these. I think the second thing in terms of CapEx requirements and what we think could that, that could make a substantial reduction is really trying, at least from our end, development and deployment of new capture technologies. So, for example, one of the things that Shell has been uh, uh, investing in is our Vienna Green CO2 uh, solid sorbent technology, which is a uh, innovative uh, separation technology around CO2 capture, um, which really we think has the potential to significantly reduce the capex and opex of the capture side of the uh, of the of the equation. And we're scaling up at the moment from a one ton CO2 pilot to about 150 day per ton demonstration project. I mean, these things take time, and you can see that all of us from Jason. Uh, myself, although we're coming from slightly different angles of the, the CCUS kind of uh, debate, um, we acknowledge that, that the cost will come down. But I think right now what we need to see is more of these projects deployment so that that can happen. And for more of those projects to be deployed, I think that really multi-stakeholder collaboration that you've heard all three of us talk about, uh, particularly the role of governments, but also I think importantly the role of the finance sector uh, is quite critical. Uh, thank you for that. Um, one one question I've got here is that uh, we we all talk about CCUS, uh, but so far today we've not really uh, focused on the U at all. So can you maybe outline some of the uh, opportunities and examples of carbon use uh, and potentially if there's innovation there that can help bring down the overall cost? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take first stab at that. So. Um... Uh, our technology fundamentally has two applications. We capture CO2 from the air. You either bury it underground, which is that negative emission that Jason was talking about, or you create a product, which is utilization. So for us in our facility in British Columbia, we make a synthetic fuel. So we take our CO2, we take hydrogen from electrolysis um, using uh, renewable electricity, combine them together using a Fischer-Tropsch process, and you get a synthetic crude. That synthetic crude can be refined into gasoline, diesel, or kerosene, any of the above. So when you have that, um, you now have a fuel whose CO2 footprint was taken out of the air in advance. So that when you put it into your existing car without modification, or your existing plane without modification, that is now carbon neutral. If the fuel is carbon neutral, the vehicle is carbon neutral. So we see great potential in, uh, in Europe, they call them electric fuels. We call our process air to fuels. 
we see great potential in utilization of atmospheric CO2 to produce a synthetic fuel, which has no feedstock limitations. We're not gonna run out of air, almost carbon neutral, and is totally compatible up to 100% use with every vehicle already on the planet. So I think there is a big industry to that's gonna come around using CO2 as a product for liquid fuels, for fertilizers, for chemicals, uh, for a whole variety of different things that will also emerge over time. This uh, circular economy and, and recycling use of CO2, I think, has a big future. I would support that entirely. Um, you know, in our work with um, various oil majors uh, across the project in Humberside, we've looked at uh, reusing our biogenic CO2. Um, and as Steve said, you need CO2 that's come from the biosphere already without digging fresh CO2 up. If you combine that with hydrogen, you can make synfuels. So we've had multiple discussions about that, understanding the market size of that. And, um, you know, vehicle fuels or aviation fuels is a great market because it's a big one. So it's a, it's a good place to put large quantities of CO2. Um, at Drax, we also have an incubation area where we encourage new startups, new companies, um, people who have got great ideas but perhaps need some help to get these projects going at pilot level and develop some momentum. Um, and in there at the moment, we've got a couple of CO2 use technologies. Um, so one is uh, is making uh, a synthetic protein from CO2. So that's, uh, that's an animal feed, effectively. Um, and the other one is looking at um, uh, an innovative way to use CO2 as an ingredient for bioplastics. Um, so there is significant amounts of work going on around the industry for using CO2. Uh, the reason CO2 is such a, a troublesome thing, it's a very stable molecule, um, and it's not easy to shape and form into other things. So um, it is difficult to use CO2, but there are some great pioneering technologies out there. Steve described one of them, um, and others are being developed all the time to do this. So um, yeah, the usage thing is out there and very active. Um, I guess it's a little harder than the than the large-scale storage solutions that we're looking at, which is maybe why it gets talked about a little less. Yeah, I mean, a couple of examples on the shell side. Uh, you know, we have been capturing our CO2 from our Pernus refinery, uh, which is in the Netherlands, and we actually supply that CO2 to the greenhouses because it actually helps uh, uh, the vegetables and the fruit grow quicker. So uh, that's, bit, that's a, a partnership that we've had with our local uh, greenhouses uh, in the Netherlands for quite some time now. Um, so a couple of other interesting innovative ones, and I'm with Jason, I think there are some quite uh, interesting technologies being trialed, uh, two of which the OGCI Climate Investments Fund has um, has uh, uh, helped fund. Uh, one's Solidia, so it's uh, it uses, it produces kind of lower emission cement and concrete, also benefit given the role of the cement sector in the future by curing, uh, curing it with CO2 rather than water. So we also have a water saving. So I think that's quite an interesting technology that, the, uh, that us as uh, in the oil and gas industry have funded because we see the value of that. Uh, and also there's another company called Econic, which is using CO2 for the plastics industry. So I think some quite interesting ideas being tested, quite early stages. I think Jason's right on that. Um, but, but I think of an interest from all of us to try and fund and support these um, go, going forward. That's really interesting. Um, the, the next question is a, is a more specific one, and I think it's aimed at uh, in the US and specifically California. So it's a question on carbon credits. So the carbon credit normally goes to the emitter, like, um, but I guess how does it work in terms of 
the emitter versus the operator of the storage site um, that gets the, the the share of the credit, um, and, and how is that used typically, or how is that, how is that share um, typically? I mean, different. Um, I, I think there's a generic answer to this question. Different uh, regimes, different uh, geographies have different carbon pricing policies and different rules. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, technology developer, operator, emitter work together. The the um, carbon credit can only be claimed in one place. So, a business deal is done between the three that reflects what makes the most sense for the three parties. But it's very important for people to understand, you know, if you claim the carbon credit at one place, you can't claim it somewhere else. So there's only one carbon credit for every one molecule of CO2 brought down. Uh, that's a, a rule that we follow very strictly. So uh, I won't go into the details of how we work that out on the plan behind me, but fundamentally, there is a value. That value is, is worked out and calculated in the business arrangement between whichever parties are making the plan. Uh, we've probably uh, got time for maybe maybe two more, so I'll do one, and then Miraj can have the uh, the last question, so he can scan for the for the best remaining one um, on storage. And maybe this is perhaps to to Sue Ern. Uh, can you just discuss what happens to the carbon once it's captured? Are there any uh, long term environmental impacts of storing carbon underground, and how long can we store the carbon underground? Um, I'll have first part for you know Jason and, and Steve, please jump in as well. We've actually been storing CO2 for decades. You know, the insular field in Algeria, uh, in, in North Sea. So the storage component of it, particularly offshore storage, has been something that goes on for a long time. Onshore, we've also, you know, used CO2, we store it, uh, particularly through enhanced oil recovery, for example, which has been a practice that particularly in the US we've used a lot of. Um, so I think the storage component is something that, um, while I think there are better communication can be made to the public in terms of building their trust uh, and their confidence in it, um, is something that given just the amount of, and how long we've been doing it for uh, without any leakage, uh, with strict monitoring requirements in place, um, I think uh, is not something that's of, of significant risk. I could probably add a couple of sentences to that. I think, uh, as Suan said, that there are multi-million tons of CO2 stored underground every year. It's, it's not a new technology. Um, I often get asked the question, how does it stay there? Um, and it stays there for exactly the same geological reason that natural gas and oil stay underground in their natural form. It's all to do with pressures, densities, um, that kind of thing. So it's it's a very that stuff's been there for millions of years. So you know there's no reason why liquid um, dense phase CO2 is not going to do the same thing. Over time, the CO2 diffuses into um, rocks and other geological formations and actually becomes almost a solid. Um, so it becomes part of the strata in, in, in that piece of geology. So it's a, it's a very well-tried, very long-established and almost a natural process that's been happening for years. Just 20 seconds from me on that. Um, this makes the point that I was making earlier on. The UK has a sizable asset, the holes in the ground underneath the North Sea. And you, know, you don't just store CO2 everywhere. I live on the west coast of Canada. We're in an earthquake zone. You don't put CO2 storage there. The UK has the ability to store a lot of CO2. That's an asset that we should use. 
I think uh, one, one last one to, to round it off, and you, you've all touched on this uh, a little bit um, through the conversation, but um, from here going forward, um, or, or the, the projects that have been executed uh, recently, what are the learnings from that generation of projects that you're going to take through to, to the next generation of projects? What's the, what's the next wave of, of improvement? Maybe one or, one or two key things. Any of you can volunteer. I'm not quite sure, Baraj, what it is we're comparing against. You we say the previous generation of projects. Oh, sorry, uh, it maybe maybe this question directed for Sue Ann because um, Shell's been at it a long time. So um, when you compare Quest or uh, you know a Gorgon, uh, you know, large sequestration projects, um, you know where are the improvements there to the next phase? Um. Uh, so Quest is a very different project to Gorgon. Um, so I think it comes back to that point. And in fact, all, you've heard from all three of us in, in terms of the differences of, of these projects. But I think if I was to be more general about the lessons learned, you know, I think one, um, that need for that multi-stakeholder collaboration that you've heard all three of us talk about. And I think that's not just between um, say the industry. So a lot of the projects that uh, Charles is involved in at the moment, um, in CCS are ones we do with the exception of, of Quest and Pernus, which are both uh, shell uh, operated run projects. Uh, we do them in partnership with others. So, you know, we, we run the Net Zero T-Star project in partnership with five other one of the guest companies, the Northern Lights project, um, et cetera. So I think that partnership, um, because again, you, leveraging off each other's uh, engineering, you know, intellectual resources, um, and frankly, also managing the costs and the risks at this point in time of where we are in the deployment curve, I think has been been a really important part of this of the um, of that collaboration piece. But I think also that that collaboration around just sharing what we're learning with more people. So, for example, for Quest, which has been you know a long-running project, five years old now of continued storing of CO2. You know, since 2014, we've had you know over 80 delegations from all around the world and governments, you know, academics to come and look at how we've done it. And we've invited them on site. We've been really open about the lessons that we've learned because that's the only real way that we can get this really deployed at the skill um, that we're required. So we're, we're quite keen on making sure that those lessons are shared more. And it's something also, for example, that the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative uh, is, is quite focused on doing in partnership with people like the IEA uh, and others on, on really sharing those lessons learned. So that's one. I think the other lesson is one that you was in a previous question around what can we do to really try and reduce this cost of the CCS projects? And I won't repeat it because you heard the examples that we've talked about. And I think the third one, which is maybe not a lessons learned, but I think it's a lesson acknowledged about where we are right now in the world um, uh, and the climate that we're in, um, which is really this need for us to keep really building and getting that momentum behind the need for CCS, because while I think it is changing and I think you can see some of the key governments uh, and you're hearing it more about the role of CCS in their nationally determined contributions and how their countries are going to do it, I think we should try and see more of the role of CCS and in countries' policy roadmaps for how they will get to a you know net zero or whatever goal they have uh, in their nationally determined contributions. And I think that's something that we can all uh, play better. Sorry, one quick last uh, one in terms of lessons learned. Um, I encourage, particularly given this audience, to uh, have a look at the Clean Energy Ministerial website on Tuesday. I was part of a panel we launched as a pre-event for the uh, ministerial meeting. 
uh, the key financing principles, uh, which was done in collaboration between some uh, of the finance community and the clean energy ministerial governments uh, to really think about the role of the finance sector in, in, um, in, in, in CCUS. So it's available on their website. I do encourage um, the audience to have a look at that too, because I think the finance sector has a key role to play. Thanks. But 20 seconds soundbite for me. I, I turn the question the other way. What can the world learn from these projects? And that's a very simple learning that climate change can be fixed. You know, projects like the one behind me, like Bex at CCUS, do provide answers. It will cost more money on day one. It will become cheaper over time. And, and we can fix the climate change problem. It's a question of choice. So we need uh, all the support from people who are you know, want to see a change um, and, and want to see governments address climate change. We need that support. We need people telling their politicians, yeah, there are solutions out there. Let's go fix it. Last 10 seconds from me, I guess. Uh, one key lesson learned 20 years ago, CO2 was nobody's problem. Now CO2 is everybody's problem, um, you know, and we have to deal with this. I think we're much better at, as a private sector now working alongside government and the finance community to deliver solutions to this. And I think with the right stable, investable regulatory support, you know, we can do this, we can make it investable and we can make it successful and deliver uh, a, a solid pipeline of projects starting this decade. Great. I guess it just remains for me to, to thank you all and to thank Virage as well. It certainly feels as if we're near the cusp, if not on the cusp of significant change in this industry. Thank you very much for all your insights today. Just want to remind the audience that this is obviously the first of a series of events that we're trying to host here at RBC on the energy transition. And in a month's time on October the 15th, we'll be tackling the, the very simple subject of, of hydrogen and, and how that has got a role to play. Um, so hope to get more of you on the line then. But uh, thanks very much to the panel today. Very much appreciated. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.